If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. William the Conqueror famously emerged victorious over King Harold at the Battle of Hastings in 1066. But in order to achieve this victory, he first had to get his army, including 2,000 horses, across the sea from Normandy. So how exactly did William achieve that gargantuan task? Well, in today's episode, David Musgrove finds out by speaking to Bristol University's Rebecca Tyson. 1066, that is uh, probably the most famous date in English history. Lots of people have written books about it. Most of our podcast listeners will know that that is the the year in which uh, Duke William, the conqueror from Normandy, went to England, defeated Harold Godwinson, King Harold, and took the the throne of England, a very famous event. And he was in Normandy, which is, of course, to the south of England, across the Channel. Somehow he had to get across to England. And that's what we're going to have a look at today. When we think about 1066, it's quite easy to just get straight to the Battle of Hastings and and think about that uh, that very well-illustrated story in the bio-tapestry. And we all know what happened, and we all know what that's about. But when you pull back a little bit, it's quite an astonishing thing that in the 11th century, someone was able to uh, amass a maritime force and get across the channel in what appears to be a fairly proficient, easy way. We'll get into that perhaps as as we have the conversation. So that's what hopefully we're going to have a a little bit of a chat about, right? So so we're going to explore how he managed to do that. So the first thing that we need to know is what sources do we know uh, that can help us to understand the makeup of, of William's naval forces? What, what can we look at? So we actually have quite a few sources that mention the preparations for the invasion. So rather than the Battle of Hastings itself, which obviously gets a lot of coverage in the sources, there are a few 
from the 11th century, so quite close to the events. So we've got um, William of Poitiers, William of Jumiege, the Carmen. Um, we've got those sources all writing um, very close. We've obviously also got the Biotapestry, which is an 11th century source that depicts these um, preparations. And then in the early 12th century, we have a lot that come about because these second um, and third generation after the conquest are trying to understand their history, the influences that this period has had on the times that they're living through. So we have William of Malmesbury, Audric Vitalis, Henry of Huntington, Geoffrey Guimar, Edma. Um, there's quite a lot that come through that all add to this story. And then in the later 12th century, we get uh, Wass and we get the Battle Abbey Chronicler. So we have people adding to this narrative sort of for over 100 years after the conquest happens. And I guess there's one of those sources which tells us very nicely how many ships he had and, and how big his force was, right? There's there's a few that throw some numbers out there. Um, I think it's important to sort of say that we don't actually know how many people were involved in the Norman conquest. Uh, most modern historians think that there's probably seven to 8,000 men-at-arms and perhaps 1,000 ships, uh, maybe 2,000 horses. But we, for the ships, we have quite a few numbers, uh, and these range from 696, quite a precise figure, provided by Wass in the 12th century. Um, and then we have all the way up to 11,000, uh, which are suggested by Geoffrey Guimar. Uh, within that, we also have um, William of Jumiere, who says 3,000, and William of Poitiers just says there were more than 1,000. So there's quite a range of numbers bandied about. We also have a document called the Ship List of William the Conqueror, and this, you would think, would tell us how many ships we actually had, but this, this document is particularly confusing because it gives a total of 776 ships, and then at the end says this totals 1,000. So we've got quite a few numbers to, to play with, and I think it's important that we remember that these writers were all writing for different purposes. So William of Poitiers, for example, wants to compare... Uh, William to these classical heroes, to the fleet of Aeneas. Geoffrey Guimar is probably just thinking of the biggest number he can he can imagine just to try and get the scale of this event across. So we shouldn't take these as gospel by any stretch. The ship list itself is probably based on quite an early source. But at the end, it says, and these ships were supplemented by others uh, from other vassals according to their means. So this is why modern historians have probably thought there were about a thousand ships involved. And do you do you stand by that number? Do you think that's a, a decent number? I don't know, to be honest. And I am not sure that that's the question that I'm most interested in because I think that the sort of military requirements of the conquest are undeniable. Uh, to transport that number of people, supplies, horses um, across the channel was obviously a huge feat. But what I'm particularly interested in is how... William felt that he had he had the knowledge and experience, the skill set within Normandy to do that in the first place. When throughout his own career, he's primarily been concerned with fighting his continental um, neighbours. To the best of my knowledge, the only evidence we have that he may have ever been on a ship before is in 1051, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle says that William probably came to visit Edward the Confessor in England. So, in a career that has been largely continental, what suddenly made him think we can we can cross the channel? And it would have been a huge undertaking. The, the sources are quite clear about this. All of Normandy bent to the task is uh, is one of the terms used. So 
he obviously felt, and within the time span as well, that this was something that could be achieved. That's a very interesting question to consider. Before we do that, though, the ship list, can we just drill into that a bit more? What is that document? Why was it devised? What was it supposed to be talking about? So it's part of um, a Bodleian Library manuscript. It's at the back of another manuscript, which is called the Brevis Relatio, and that uh, also includes the narrative of the Norman conquest. But the ship list itself is probably written around 1120, and it has been argued by by modern scholars that it contains information from the immediate years following the Norman invasion, probably before 1072. So this is somebody probably writing in the Abbey of Fécamp, which is on the coast of Normandy, uh, just north of the Seine estuary. And they're writing down a list of the names of people who contributed ships to Duke William's invasion force. And there are 15 names, um, and they're the sort of people we would expect to find on there, perhaps. So some of the people who we see from charter evidence are very often in William's court. They're witnessing charters with him throughout his his whole life in Normandy. And then we've got Duchess Matilda, wife of um, William the Conqueror. Uh, She's recorded as giving the flagship of the fleet. Uh, which this document gives the name, the Mora. Um, and nobody, to the best of my knowledge, has has come up with a good explanation of what that name means, if it has any particular resonance. But the descriptions of that ship within other sources say that it was very fast, it was um, a pinnacle of design, and it had various embellishments to it, such as a figurehead in the shape of a child with a horn and an arrow pointing towards England. So this document is quite an interesting sort of source of information. But then, like I say, it sort of gives numbers of ships for each of the different magnates. So Robert Mortain is recorded given 120 ships, all the way down to Remedius of Fécamp, who gives one ship. And then the total is 776, if you add those up. But the document says the total is 1,000. And Scholars have therefore been quite wary, I think, of this document in the past. Yeah, but it is quite hard to add things up, isn't it? They (laughs) didn't have Excel spreadsheets, so that's quite a big number anyway. It is definitely a big number, and it definitely also says that these ships were supplemented by by other magnates as well. So I think it's, for me, the reason that this document is particularly of interest is because it indicates who may have had access to maritime resources, sailors. And it's interesting, therefore, to sort of dig down into that a bit further, not necessarily to verify the numbers themselves, but to see if those people may have actually been in a position to make those sort of contributions. Mm. Okay. Let's drill into the question that you posed in one of your previous answers here as to uh, what William was was all about, why he thought he could do this. So did he take personal control over the creation of the fleet? Do we know who was in charge of it and and where they were based? So following on from my answer to to the previous question, by looking into these different magnates, I think that I have a suggestion for who the person who managed the assembly of the fleet and the army in Normandy. I think I know who that was. And on the ship list, as well as in William of Poitiers, uh, he lists the outstanding men of the secular order who are William's chief advisors. Um, and one of those men is called Roger Montgomery. And he's a man who William the Conqueror has known from childhood. He's a powerful vassal in his own right. And he just happens to own extensive lands in the area around Dives-sur-Mer, which is where William of Poitiers and Audric Vitalis say that the invasion fleet assembled. Roger Montgomery was also Vicomte of the Himois, which is the name of this region. And in that capacity, he was responsible for collecting ducal revenues 
so goods and money, um, and they were kept in the ducal depots at Caen and Bonville-sur-Touc. And Dives saint is basically in the middle of those two places. So I think that therefore, within the capacity as sort of a trusted magnate of Duke William, within his role as this major administrator in this region, he was perfectly placed to try and feed potentially 8,000 men and 2,000 horses while they were waiting, um, allegedly, for the weather. Is this a new theory? This is something that you're taking on in your research or is it something that other people have posited? He's been named as a potential person for doing this in the past, but my approach is slightly different because the ship list previously has been used as a document that looks at the relative wealth of the people listed in it. Whereas what I've done is I've looked at these names and then I've looked at charter evidence and other places where their lands have been recorded and I've plotted them on a map. And then I've taken all the ones that are on coastal rivers only uh, to show where these people may have actually had access to these maritime skill sets. And in the Dive area, well, in the River Dive and its tributaries, Roger of Montgomery owns over 80% of the lands of these magnates that are on those rivers. The ship list has him uh, recorded as only providing 60 ships, which is about 8% of the of the fleet. So he clearly has relatively few ships, but most of the lands in this area. There's no other magnate on that list who has very many interests here. So then I was looking at, well, why Dave? It's not an ideal place um, if you take it on where all, if 90% of the fleet has to move to that place. Um, so I was looking at it from that perspective. And I think my argument has strengthened him as a suggestion because I've sort of explored it as part of a wider geography of the Norman Conquest. We're not going to go into the backstory of the 1066 um, prelims. We've done that in other podcasts. Listeners, you can listen to other podcasts about that. But if you look at the tapestry. It's quite interesting the way the story moves on quite quickly. So Harold essentially takes the crown. He, in William's eyes, he usurps William's rightful place on, on the throne. And then the action cuts back to Normandy and William is sort of seen having a, a bit of a council of war and then immediately there's, there's a load of ships being built. So it, it appears that it's like a really sudden boom, um, you know, I'm, I'm angry with Harold and I'm going to build a fleet and I'm going to and I'm going to go. What do we know about the ship writing, ship building industry in Normandy? Would it, would it have been ready to ramp up and go straight away if William had said, right, we're going to build a fleet, we're going to go and get that Harold? Well, it's interesting because the sources, um, including the biotapestry, don't seem to imply that it's considered to be a a really exceptional thing to to ask for. So if Edward the Confessor dies in January, um, we think that the fleet was probably ready to sail in July um, and then they're, they're allegedly delayed by the wind for a month and then they finally do set sail. We're, like, we're talking six months to assemble a, an invasion fleet. That is quite a short amount of time if you're building an entire fleet, um, which I think most historians have uh, are quite happy to accept wasn't the case. But um, nobody's really looked before if he didn't build it or where did he get it from. So there's several places where Normandy had pre-existing ships. Uh, they had quite a strong fishing fleet. So Ficomp particularly was um, involved in fishing and whaling. Uh, and they actually had a whaling fleet based in the Dee Vestry. And then 
We can also look at the earlier 11th century evidence for maritime activity. And Duke William's father actually also attempted an invasion of England and similarly got a fleet together. Similarly was blown off course by the wind. So within a generation, certainly within living memory of the people doing the invasion of 1066, we've potentially got maritime skills, experience, potentially even the boats available within Normandy. William Malmesbury, who's writing in 1125, He says that the ships of Robert's fleet, Duke Robert, that's William the Conqueror's father, the ships of that fleet can still be seen in his day at Rouen. So those ships were around. We also hear from Audric Vitalis that when he's talking about the preparations for the Norman invasion, he says many men maintained ships, they spent their money on them, both the clergy and the laity. So he's implying that these ships were already around What they were used for, we're not entirely sure. We know that the Normans were involved in cross-channel trade because uh, the merchants of Rouen had a wharf in London in the reign of Edward the Confessor. And we know that there were lots of connections around the English Channel zone culturally, economically, as well, both pre- and post-conquest. So it is reasonable to expect that William had ships within his realm to call upon. The number that were required to be built, because so many of the sources do agree that they they needed to build ships, we're probably not talking about the majority of the fleet. And especially if we consider the knowledge that we have today from uh, things like the experimental archaeological work done by the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde in Denmark, they've been working on reconstructions of these ships, well, 11th century ships, uh, for the last 40 years. So we know quite well how long these take to build, what sort of resources they need, um, and therefore we can make more informed guesses. It's still it's still guesses, but we can make more informed guesses about what the requirements might have been in 1066. Would you go out on a limb and, and, and give a number as to how many ships you think they had to build versus how many they managed to drag in from elsewhere? I wouldn't want to guess because I don't know how big the armies were, but I would suggest that if They had the skill set to build them and the resources available because these sort of resources, we're talking 200-year-old oaks of a certain diameter, tar in huge quantities, rope, uh, wool for sails. Uh, Unless these were actually ready available to go in January 1066, there wouldn't have been the time to be able to build that many completely brand new ships unless all these resources were just ready and waiting. Mm, so it requires a stockpile of, of resources somewhere to, to be able to go. But before we go back to the actual building of the ship, so if you're right, and I'm sure you must be, that they co-opted a lot of ships from elsewhere, we're, we're talking about a, a fleet of various different vessels from whalers to, to fishing boats to commercial traders to some sort of warship-type structures as well, but a fleet of quite a disparate bunch of boats, I guess. I would suggest so. And that's also reflected in the five 11th century ships that we do have from Roskilde. Those are 11th century ships that were deliberately um, sunk in, in the fjord, but they have been preserved and exhibited now. And we can see that they reflect a large warship, for example, 30 metres long. And then we've got all the way down to a small fishing craft. And in the middle, we've got an ocean-going cargo vessel. So these are the sorts of ships that are operating in the English Channel zone in the 11th century. These are the sort of ships that may have been available in Normandy. So the trade cogs we know are going between England and, and Normandy and Ireland and Normandy. 
And the Maya Tapestry shows the same sorts of ships, the warships, as were found in Roskilde that they have then reconstructed. So I think on that basis, we can imply that there would have been a range of ships. Um, and also, I think it's Wass who... He's, he's writing in the, the later 12th century, but he sort of specifically says that there are boats, there are skiffs, there are ships, like reflecting the fact that there are different types of vessels being employed here. So what do we know about shipbuilding? You said that we've kind of maybe from the Roskilde work, we've got an idea about how long it takes to build a ship. What sort of time scale are we talking about and how much material was required to build the sort of boats that we're talking about? So I thought you might ask me this, so I have checked in advance <laughs> how long it took Roskilde, uh, so the Viking Ship Museum in Roskilde, to build their reconstruction of Skuldalev II, which is the large warship. Um, so they used 20 oaks, uh, about 200 years old, and 56,669 hours were required to build the reconstruction. Uh, but that includes the collection and processing of all the resources as well. So that is probably one person every day, 24 hours a day for 13 years. Right. Which they didn't do. Yeah. So we can work out then that it's a significant use of resources. And those resources were the same that are used in cathedrals, in castles. Uh, the reconstruction of the roof in Notre Dame uh, after the terrible fire in 2019 is using exactly the same sorts of oaks, so 200-year-old oaks of a certain height and diameter, uh, though they're expecting to use probably 2,000 of them in that build, so 20 to 2,000. The, the boats uh, certainly had the same resource requirements, um, but... That was a managed resource, I think it's fair to say. You didn't just go and cut down whatever tree you wanted in, in Normandy. In order to be able to manage these resources over multiple generations, which must have been done, um, there must have been some sort of management strategy. And some scholars have looked into that, and it does appear to be the case. Certainly in the Carolingian period, we have these accounts of, of forest management that likely carried on into the 11th century. Can you paint us a picture of what you imagine it might have looked like in Dives sur mer in July 1066? So there's a paper by a scholar called Bernard Bachrach, who has, um, and it's very visual, which is the reason why I'm, I've immediately thought of it. He has done an analysis based on a sort of an assumption of how many men and horses there may have been in the in the area of Dives in in the early months of 1066. And he particularly highlights the challenges of dealing with that much, basically poo, provided by all of these people. So when I think of it, I think it's probably going to smell. I think that there's going to be a lot of activity. Um, I mean, the estimates for, for the number of blacksmiths involved in shoeing all these horses and all the various personnel that are just there to support the, the lords and their men, the people bringing in the supplies, the other reason why I think that uh, Dives sur mer was chosen, along with another justification for why it had to be Roger Montgomery, is because uh, the Prairie de Caen is very close by. So this is um, a large straw growing area. So if you're having to feed 2,000 horses, um, you want to be quite close to the place where that, that is happening. So that would have been brought through. But like I say, it's a tidal marsh. So um, getting out of there, you would have... And I think this applies to the whole question of the Norman invasion. The awareness of the tides was key. 
If you don't understand the tides, then the tidal range of the English Channel is about 12 metres. It's a considerable change between low and high tide. Places that were land at one part of the day, if you pitch your tent there and you come back six hours later, it won't be land anymore. You probably don't have a tent. Um, thank you. That's a, that's a nice picture. And so um, Backrack, the, the scholar you just mentioned, he also wrote about horse transports, I think. So what's what's your view? You're saying 2,000 horses, perhaps? That's the number that modern scholars accept. How did they get these on, on the boats, do you think? That I do not know. And that is one of the big questions of this sort of study of the Norman invasion. Uh, the biotapestry shows horses jumping quite merrily over the, over the side. I do not know much about horses personally, but I do know that in the source material that we have, um, it indicates that transporting horses was not necessarily as exceptional as we might think. Possibly the scale, so that many horses being moved um, is possibly beyond what had been done before. But we know from a very recent paper, actually, um, by Tessie Luffelman of Durham, uh, in the ninth century, the Viking Great Army, there's a cremation burial in Derbyshire. And recent isotope analysis has shown that the horse from that burial has come from um, somewhere around the Baltic. So that horse has travelled to Derbyshire and has subsequently been buried there. So we know that animals are being transported across the seas. We also have other accounts of Welsh kings giving tribute to Irish kings in the form of horses. So we're sort of getting these hints that these animals are being moved around. Um, it just might be the scale that's exceptional. But at the moment, there is not been a particularly convincing sort of argument for how it was done. Additionally, the recent War Horse project, which is, I think it's just finished, and it's between Exeter University and the University of East Anglia, They've demonstrated through studying archaeological remains of horses throughout the medieval period that actually medieval horses were a lot smaller than we previously thought. So in that backrack paper, he's assuming they're the big destriers of sort of later medieval England, whereas actually they're 14 hands at most probably and more reflect what today would be called ponies. And there are skeletons of horses found in the Ladby ship in Denmark and nobody previously really took that too seriously like these are just little farm ponies but actually they're within this sort of parameters of what could well have been a war horse in in the uh, 11th century let's take the story on a bit how do all the ships get assembled get gathered in Dives Sumer and then what happens after that so we have two sources that say that the assembly point was Dives Sumer we've got William of Poitiers uh, writing around uh, the 1070s and we've got Audric Vitalis writing in the 1120s but Pretty much all of the sources agree that the fleet finally left for England from a place called saint valery sur somme saint valery sur somme is not actually in Normandy. It's about 200 kilometres up the coast. It's a huge estuary, so that is more the sort of place you would probably expect a thousand ships to be assembling. However... Because some modern historians argue that it was always the intention that the Norman fleet would move up the coast to San Valery, and that was an intentional part of William's plan. But others follow the, the sources which say that he was blown there against his wishes by an unfavourable wind. The problem I have with the theory that they went there deliberately is that some of these ships, probably if we take the Count of Oeuf, for example, he's already very close to saint Valery. So why would he be assembling at Dives Samir? So the sources are a little bit ambiguous. Like, did the whole fleet assemble and then move, or did they pick up people on the way? Um, it's also a potentially very dangerous 
thing to move a thousand ships in a concerted sort of order. And especially with these tidal considerations I was talking about, because of the size of that estuary, even though these ships would have been quite a shallow draft, which means they don't actually go that deep into the water, you still find that before modern canalization works on these rivers, that there would have been a main channel. So each ship has to go basically in a line up these rivers with a limited amount of time, six hours between tides. And just the the amount of management that would have been involved in getting these ships in and out of these spaces. And when you drag them up onto the bank, making sure that when the water comes back in, they don't then crash into each other, which was a problem that Caesar had when he tried to invade England. Like, There's so many considerations regarding this that I'm not sure exactly whether I'm, I'm decided yet, whether it was a deliberate move or, or an accidental one. We also get the sort of the, the record that several ships were lost in this movement. So that's, as we've seen, a considerable risk in terms of men. It might have been horse transport, certainly in terms of resources. Um, the whole thing is just very risky, which is another reason why I was interested in exploring this topic, that the level of knowledge and its skill and experience must have been quite high for them to think that this was possible and for also for actually we know that it, they executed it successfully. Okay, so then they're gathered potentially in a second place, depending on how we interpret what's gone on, and then they go? Yeah, then they go. So if they were intending to cross from Deve initially, like some of the sources say, that's about 14 hours. If, if you're crossing from there to England and you would have been entering somewhere around Southampton Water, so just going past the Isle of Wight into, into Portsmouth Harbour perhaps uh, and then on to Winchester. Whereas once they were by St Valerie, they were on the sort of narrower part of the English Channel where the crossing is a mere nine hours and that's how they, straight across from there, you get to Hastings. There's been a lot of work done on these sort of cross-channel routes and it's quite reasonable to to agree with that scholarship, which says that people crossed from the nearest place to the nearest place, so you went straight across. It's only when we get sources that say there was a reason, so like Robert Curto is trying to cross to attack Henry I, he realises that the army, Henry's army is waiting for him where he was intending to cross to, so he then changes to somewhere else. So people tend to try and cross by the shortest route which brings up Pevensey Harbour on the other side of the English Channel, which again has changed a great deal since the Norman invasion. So uh, Pevensey Castle is actually within a Roman fort and the sea would have originally come right up the walls, whereas now it's quite a long way away. I think it's over a mile away. If those ships arrived there, it's again within quite a marshy area. We hear that after they've landed at Perrenty, they then go on to Hastings. That was almost certainly by ship as well, because the road network would have meant they had to go up and around. So again, we're seeing these ships being used in sort of several instances within this uh, initial landing. And the crossing itself, do we think it went pretty smoothly? It seems to have. Out of probably roughly a thousand ships, we only have two sources in two very different ways say that only two ships were lost. One of them says that um, a couple of the ships landed at the wrong place and they landed in Romney and the locals basically attacked them, overwhelmed them and killed all the crews. Um, another one, which is uh, an interesting way of sort of shoehorning it into the narrative. He he says that two ships were lost and one of them had the soothsayer on it. So we hear about it because Duke William 
has been told that if he successfully crosses the channel, he will be able to win the crown without a fight. And the soothsayer that said that when William asked for him, he was like, where's my soothsayer? Oh, he drowned. And he said, well, if this man couldn't even predict his own demise, then he is no use to me. And sort of it's a it's a moralising tale of not listening to soothsayers. Um, but, but these are the two sources that tell us that ships were lost in the crossing. Don't listen to soothsayers, folks. That soothsayer was wrong. He didn't, he didn't win without a fight, did he? The crossing itself is sort of implied as being particularly easy because William the Conqueror is uh, recorded as having dropped anchor and had a meal in the middle of the channel while he waits for his fleet to catch up with him. So the the implication there is that there is no storm, that he's got good weather, he has a lookout who's scanning the horizon for the rest of his fleet, which implies good visibility. And these are sources uh, that we should take with a pinch of salt because they are using classical examples to basically compare Duke William to classical heroes and the way that the Normans wanted themselves to be seen within this sort of classical pantheon. But the fact that such a relatively small number of ships were were lost, it's quite interesting because we wouldn't necessarily expect there to be losses. Um, The activity across the channel was very frequent. There would have been people who did this journey very often. But the nature of those ships is such that they can be overwhelmed quite quite quickly if the the waves are quite big or if the wind changes and things like that. So um, it's it's quite a serious undertaking crossing the English Channel in an open boat. I think it's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. And they were they were under sail rather than under all, or was it a, was it a bit of both? Do you think? So these ships, again, it depends on the type of ship. So the warships certainly could have been rowed very successfully um, at very, very quick speeds, but they would have probably used their oars for negotiating harbours and some of the more sort of specific manoeuvres and then been under sail thereafter. The larger cargo ships only had about four oars, two to four oars, and they were primarily just for sort of refining the movements under sail to get into the harbour. Um, but in many cases, there weren't necessarily infrastructure at these harbours. So it would have just been a case of basically ramming the beach and um, just waiting for the tide to carry off. So these cargo ships, um, some people have argued, actually functioned as beach markets. So they would just park up and people would come and buy things. And then when the tide came in, they would float them away again. So different ships had different abilities and requirements. I don't think that anyone would suggest that people could row across the English Channel for nine hours. Um, I think it was under sail and then just rowing probably at either end in and out of the the harbours. I think I might say that the sources tell us that King Harold kind of stood down his naval forces from the Isle of Wight before William's fleet um, arrived because he presumably thought that that they weren't coming. So do we know if William's fleet was ready for a, a naval engagement should that have happened? I mean, you mentioned warships, but also there were cargo ships. There was no naval engagement as far as we know, was there? Harold had his fleet and his land army sort of ready to to meet the Normans throughout the summer. But then he moved everybody north when he had to go to the battle. But then they also had to stand down the fjord because uh, it was harvest season. Uh, September is, is harvest season and the Normans set sail in sort of about the 12th of September. I think they left Eve and then it was the 28th or 29th of December that they left St. Valerie. So there there wouldn't have been a land force waiting and the sea force, it's recorded that they went back to their main port of Sandwich. Um, but I think it's Audric Vitalis says that when he heard that William was coming, he sent 70 ships out. But we don't hear anything that happened to them. We don't know 
if they could do anything. Naval battles that we would probably imagine, sort of the hornblower type, they, they didn't really tend to happen in the 11th century. It was more... Um, stopping people from getting into safe harbours because eventually they would have to find somewhere to go and, and when they do, that's when the, the land force has gone. So you, the beacon system would have notified people all along the coast of where the enemy was so that they could sort of target the, the responses. But it wasn't necessarily, uh, to the best of my knowledge, a case of actually engaging them. And the battle you just mentioned where Harold had to send his, his troops north for, uh, we're not going to go into the details after the invasion, but that was up to face Harold Hardrada in Yorkshire. Uh, and then he famously had to come back down and, and face William. Now, look, so, so let's go back to the question you kind of posed at the start as to why William thought that he would be able to pull this off. You've kind of, in the course of this conversation, you've made it clear, I think, that there was a sufficient level of maritime knowledge and skills in Normandy to give him that level of confidence, i.e. there were enough ships, there was enough shipbuilding prowess around these coastal ports and there must have been the the level of logistical resources in place for the material to be delivered to where it needed to be so you could say and i th- you mentioned earlier that you know it's the the sources underplay the exceptionalism of the achievement um so was it an exceptional achievement it was an exceptional achievement and i think that's reflected in the impact that it had but it was an exceptional achievement for the fact that the Duke of Normandy became King of England more than I think necessarily the the way that he did it. So the fleet is a large fleet by by medieval standards, even if we go for the sort of lower estimate of a thousand ships, like for example, Harold Hardrada is recorded as coming over for Stamford Bridge with 300 ships. Um, so it's certainly not further to go there. Yeah, he did. The North Sea has a smaller tides, but yeah, they're uh, worse weather, I suppose. They had a lot of ships, and that does make it, I think, exceptional. But then again, it's also probably considered exceptional because Normandy hasn't been assumed to have had this maritime knowledge. It seems like the Norman invasion just comes out of nowhere after an 11th century of fighting the, the Angevins, the people of Maine, the French king. They aren't known in popular history or even probably in scholarly history as being a maritime nation in the 11th century, which I think is quite interesting because obviously William the Conqueror's father also attempted uh, an invasion of England. So two generations clearly thought they had the resources to do this, which implies that that skill set was available throughout the century. And Dudar Saint-Quentin, who's an early ducal, uh, Norman ducal biographer, uh, he writes the sort of earliest ducal history of the Normans, he makes absolutely no apology for saying that the Normans are a naval power and that Rollo and their sort of the Viking heritage, as it were, is a big sort of contributor to the way that the Norman people are. But there has been a lot of debate about how far that can then continued sort of after the 10th century um, and certainly by the 11th century, how far did the Normans consider themselves to be Viking descendants? Roger Montgomery, interestingly, uh, describes himself as a Northman which is an interesting self-identification and we need to explore more what exactly that meant in the context of this sort of existing maritime knowledge. And um, in terms of the community maritime knowledge as well, like how, how did this continue and thrive when it sort of wasn't directly employed by the Norman dukes? In their, in their wars. Just on, on William the Conqueror himself then, so I just want to be clear here whether you 
when we're thinking about why and how he felt so confident in making this this journey, what precisely would have made him so confident that he was able to get his forces across the channel in the numbers that he needed? I think it probably would have been the fact that he was utterly convinced that God was on his side in all this. And that is a very important aspect of, of all this, that uh, he he genuinely believed that he had been promised this and that God was behind him. I know that there's there's current debates about the papal banner and the fact that whether the Pope did, in fact, sort of endorse the mission, but sort of the trust that what he was doing was, was right, tempered with the fact that he must have had the confidence that on sort of that early day in January when he gets the news that Edward the Confessor has not only died, but the person who he thought was going to support his claim has actually claimed the throne, that we then get the sources saying he assembled his vassals and his sort of key advisors. And he basically says, I want to go and get this. How are you going to help me to do it? It's not, should we should we just go and attack the Bretons again? Or should we pick a fight with one of our continental neighbours? It's It's not, should we? It's like, how can we do it? And so I think that he must have known that the resources were available. Whether they were entirely available within Normandy, it's probably worth mentioning that that may not be the case because we do know that uh, lots of other people came to support the Norman invasion, so people from different parts of France. But he must have had that initial knowledge that these magnates had resources to call upon. And if it had not been part of their sort of obligations as his vassals to provide them, we probably would have heard more about it, more complaints about it in the sources. People tended to be quite protective of their customary rights. And one of the the later sort of sources trying to make sense of, of all this is that the numbers provided for the Norman conquest must have been uh, exceptional. They must have gone above their feudal obligations because they, they weren't necessarily reflected again later that everybody just really pulled together for this sort of period. But in order to do that, if you're if you're doubling your your number of ships, if you say, well I've got 60 but I'll provide you 120, you must be pretty confident that you can you can do that to make those promises to William when he's saying I want this done by the end of the year. I'm not sure that William is often compared to Margaret Thatcher, but I often think about this in the in the same way that Thatcher when she heard that the Falkland Islands had been invaded, she went to the Board of Admiralty or whatever, and said, "Can we get a task force?" And then they, and you know, they said, "Yes, we can do it." And someone else said, "No, we can't." And then, they, and then someone said, "Yes, we can," and, and off they went. Do you imagine that that's a any sort of comparison that he's he was stood somewhere in a in a council chamber and said, "Can we do it?" And his councillors said, "We can do it." We certainly get the sources telling us that there was some pushback, and it's interesting that at the start. All of these sort of vassals are on the same kind of level. Nobody is picked out above anybody else. But in the later sources, William Fitzosburn, who was the steward of Normandy, who was one of William's oldest childhood friends, he sort of comes forward in the sources as quite a cunning individual. He sort of meets with all the vassals and they're all really unhappy. They don't want to, they don't think they can do it. Some of them say we're not obliged to serve beyond the sea, which is interesting. That's a much later addition. Um, and he says, yes, I totally agree with you. I will tell William, and they're like, oh, brilliant. We will follow you and like, we'll do whatever you say. And he goes into William and he says, it's all great. 
They're, they're going to give you everything you want and then they're stuck because they've already said they're going to do what he says. So it's interesting, firstly, that William Fitzosborne is pulled out in this more prominent position in the 12th century sources, but also that there wasn't more of a uproar if he had actually done that to all these people. Right. So you're, you're still in the in the thick of your research on this. Um, as you said you, at the start, you're, you're doing doctoral research to understand this story more fully. And am I right in thinking that you're about to head off on a, on a boat to try and trace some of the uh, evidence on the water? Yes, that's right. So in a couple of months, I'm going to hire a boat and a crew, and I'm going to do a research trip around the English Channel. And my aims with that research are really to try and highlight the value of an experiential approach to this history. So the many of the sources that I've been discussing, we know that the writers of those sources made a channel crossing. So uh, William of Poitiers is a canon in Dover following the Norman conquest. We know that Audric Vitalis uh, was born in Shrewsbury and travelled to Normandy as a boy. And then later in his life, he goes back to England to Crowland Abbey. So some of our sources have made this crossing. The the Carmen as well, one of the early um, sources um, the, the person who wrote that crossed with the Duchess Matilda in 1068. So we know that there is lived experience in some of these depictions of the maritime travel. Um, and I'm interested in, I wouldn't say recreating those journeys because that's not what I'm trying to do. Um, I'm in a modern boat rather than an 11th century longship, sadly. But I will be able to have that same experience of what is it like to be in the middle of the English Channel? And what can you see? What can you hear? What are the effects of the weather? What's the soundscape like? And when we're approaching these these harbours that we have quite detailed information about, so San Valerie and Dive, and I've done my own studies on how those landscapes have changed over time. So in terms of coastal erosion, I know how those landscapes may have looked in the past and what, therefore, the considerations may have been in entering these harbours. So when we hear that a north wind uh, in the Dive estuary pinned William's fleet in port, I've been to Dive. I've seen what a north wind does and the waves are huge and the modern fishing boats can't get out and everyone just goes back home and has a cup of tea. But when we consider these things from a sort of lived experience point of view, it just adds another facet to our interpretation. So the same way that we know that these sources have been influenced by classical texts, I think it's important to also sort of look to that lived experience as well and, and bring those two things together. That was Rebecca Tyson. Rebecca is a doctoral student at the University of Bristol, researching the maritime aspects of the Norman invasion of England in 1066. We hope to catch up with Rebecca again when she's completed her seaborne survey of the Channel and the Normandy coastline. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>